0: There was a shift in how I viewed money. Money itself was a tool of exchange and not a source of stature. And the marketplace was a place where I could go offer my help in exchange for money. Help that is valuable and that has assigned value. And the money that I got was just commensurate to the assigned value of the help that i was providing so if i wanted more money to fulfill my aims i had to provide help that was valuable in that marketplace
1: helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers businesses and lives this is the influence ecology podcast now here is your host john patterson
2: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ojai, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. Today's feature is an interview with Kush Cooper, who holds a doctorate in social work. Her journey is quite relevant to those in the nonprofit sector, the conscious capitalism movement, or anyone who has ever struggled with making a living and wanting to do good. You'll hear how her view of money changed when she began to understand that money is an exchange of help rather than a necessary evil. After the break, we'll hear today's guru talk from a membership webinar on the subject of indifference in the marketplace. You'll hear co-founder Kirkland Tibbles address the state of mind of an ambitious adult. In her interview, Dr. Cooper refers to passively waiting rather than ambitiously transacting. And this talk underscores the difference between most people and those who act with ambition. Here's the interview. Take a second and introduce yourself.
0: Well, my name is Dr. Koush Cooper. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a doctor of social work. My company, Koush Cooper and Associates, streamlines foster care services for California. I'm based in Los Angeles where I live with my domestic partner and my 15-month-old daughter and two dogs.
2: Is there anything else that we should know about you and what you've accomplished over the course of your adult life?
0: The thing I would share is I started out as a social worker who wanted to do good, and was fine doing that initially, punching the clock in somebody else's organization and working all sorts of hours just because I was doing good and making a difference. I chose to get my master's degree so I could do more good. Then I chose to get my doctorate because that seemed like the logical next thing to do. But I always knew that I never wanted to teach. And working long hours and punching the clock in somebody else's organization was also not something that was in line with my aims. And so once I got my doctorate, I actually started out as a social entrepreneur. There's not many social workers that actually go that way. And so I found myself alone mm. in, in the social work marketplace. I'm really proud of the fact that I have been an entrepreneur running my own business, managing the financials for the last 10 years, it is something that most social workers don't get to do. That's great. And a passion for having a life where social responsibility and abundance actually have equal weight.
2: In your notes, you wrote this one thing. You said, if you work hard and are kind to people, especially those less fortunate than you, then it will all work out. Not true. You say you still have to transact. And I think this is a beautiful thing because I've known you now for three years, four years. uh, I think something like that. Yes. You're extremely smart. How many languages do you speak? Four. Four languages. You have a doctorate in social work. You're deeply and profoundly committed to people. You've been working with people and families in the welfare system in California, and you've been working with the LGBT community in a variety of ways for a long time. You are out to do good. And that part about you is very clear. So you're smart. You're out to do good. And. As many people think, well, that ought to be enough. (laughs) I'm smart. (laughs) I ought to be able to figure this out. I'm committed to making a difference in some way, shape, or form. I want to do good. Yet, I still have to transact. So first of all, can you, for the sake of all the other people just like you, and I know lots of them myself, tell us a little bit about life before Influence Ecology in that regard.
0: Life before Influence Ecology looked like this. I had a lot of social capital. I was known as somebody that was deeply committed to children and families. I had a lot of stature in my field. I taught at a university. I was invited to meetings with the state and the counties. And my bank account just did not reflect either my talent or my stature. And I started to look back at the way I'd been brought up as an immigrant. And as as an immigrant, you're taught to not rock the boat, don't get fired, work hard, save for retirement, don't do anything that'll get you deported or get your green card taken away, and everything will work out. You got a good education, that good education at a top-tier university got you a good job, and you worked at that good, stable job till you retired. I don't know what I don't know what they thought we did Then you travel all over the place or or something like that.
2: So that's what the the narrative was in in other countries. And then you come over here and you're here and, and you moved here when
0: I when I was 12 and a half
2: 12 and a half. Okay, good. And do you mind me asking your age now?
0: 42.
2: Okay, all right, great. So 30 years ago, right? Yep. All right. So you're here at 12. And you go to Duke University doing all the right things making difference and and so forth and as you said your your finances aren't turning out so I, I have some questions for you about that and about what your mindset was again before influence ecology about all of that did you think that it would turn out like I hear some people say uh, the universe will you know repay me mm-hmm
0: there was going to ultimately be a nice person award ah. and I was going to get that nice person award and I don't know if that was going to look like a benefactor who knows what I actually thought when you get down to the accuracy of the thinking yeah at some point someone was going to notice all the good that I'd done both personally and professionally And they were going to go ahead and put money into a retirement account for me and send my children to college.
2: (laughs) All right, good. Now, you're a really rational person, right? You're a rational, smart, intelligent person. Yep. Did you believe that? Did you just simply cross your fingers and hope for that? Was that really your strategy? Or was it just unchecked?
0: I don't know that it was a deliberate or conscious strategy. It was a background conversation. Yep. I would say it started out with hoping, and then it sort of evolved into, I would say, in my sort of late 30s, it evolved into this worry that nothing was happening, and I'd done a whole lot of good. And then there were flavors of resentment mm. that started to percolate as I got closer to my 40s.
2: Tell me about that. What What are some of those resentment?
0: I could start to see there wasn't an award coming. In fact, I needed even more money than I thought I needed to retire. And I didn't go to business school. I went to social work school. And I had no idea how I was going to get from where I was to fulfilling my aims for where I wanted to live, the size of the family I wanted to have, the kind of work I wanted to do. Now I could see the gap, right? Enough years had gone by where it didn't look like the 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 award was coming. I didn't know how to get from where I was in my entrepreneurial consulting practice, get to where I could turn that around. And so that's where some of the resentment started to set. And I started to question my path, the path I had chosen. I started to question my mentors along the way. And I started to wonder, hey, listen, maybe I need to go start punching a clock somewhere. Yeah. And it stopped doing good after all, because it just doesn't get you anywhere.
2: And as someone that's engaged in the environment of other people who are committed to doing good and, and the like, what were others in the same discourse saying about all this? Were they in the same place? Were they in a different place? What, what were they saying?
0: The discourse in the social work field, and I see it in my students, is that the reward is enough to round out the money you don't make.
2: The reward of doing good.
0: The reward of doing good is enough. And what I've recently started to ask them, and I think influence ecology has a, has, has a huge role in this, is I ask them to tomorrow after class go to the grocery store And try and purchase some groceries with their reward. And ask them, how's that going? Well, grocery stores don't take the reward. They take cash.
2: Did you, along your your own journey... Resent the market as it was. Resent the structure, system, monetary, economic market as it was. Did you wish it were different? Did you beat your fists against it, thinking it should be different? Did you? Uh, what What happened in in that way?
0: The first principle that I could say I used to live by was, and it still rears its ugly head from time to time, is that money is evil. Hmm money is evil, and it turns good people into greedy, myopic, and selfish people. So money was evil. And I can see narratives in my family where we looked down on some of our more wealthy relatives.
3: Hmm.
0: Right, And so it's no wonder I actually picked the profession I picked. In many ways, it was predictable that I would stay away from money. In retrospect,
2: All right, you're not going to be an evil person. You're going to be a good person.
0: I'm going to be a good person. Money being evil, and then the marketplace where money is the thing that's used as the major tool of exchange, is also evil. Where people are just, people are selfish. They're in it for themselves. Yeah. And, you know, they waste resources that could be used to support the lives of folks less fortunate than than they were. Things like gambling. Yeah. Right? Gambling for entertainment seemed to me a, a terrible side effect of this marketplace that we're in.
2: So in your first participation here with Influence Ecology, did you then come to terms with your relationship to the marketplace? What what exactly happened that began to turn things for you?
0: There was a shift in how I viewed money. Mm-hmm. So money itself was a tool of exchange and not a source of stature. And the marketplace was a place where I could go offer my help in exchange for money.
2: As opposed to?
0: A place where greedy people threw around money and didn't care about their fellow man. And profit was the only God.
2: Yeah. It went from that to being a place where you could, say again, offer help.
0: Mm -hmm. And be help that is valuable and that has assigned value. And the money that I got was just commensurate to the assigned value of the help that I was providing. So if I wanted more money to fulfill my aims, it followed from that, that I had to provide help that was valuable in that marketplace
2: back to your your quote you said if you work hard and are kind to people especially those less fortunate than you then it will all turn out and you found that not to be true that you still have to transact and since we are the leading business and transactional competence and we teach transactional competence which is the skill the ability the successful skill the efficient skill of exchange and trade and conducting business, then what else did you learn about money, the marketplace, your role in it? How how else did that change in your journey here at Influence Ecology?
0: The first thing I had to confront was uh, sort of the slogan that we'll hear when we study, which is that the marketplace is indifferent. Like essentially, the marketplace doesn't care about me, and. I had to disabuse myself of this notion I used to carry, which the marketplace should care. It should care about me. It should care about what I want. Once I got to the other side of that and I could really just confront and not have a lot of charge around this notion that the marketplace is indifferent, then I could see that I was going to have to generate my own success, my own transaction right? Going from passively waiting to ambitiously transacting. That came out of the initially very depressing realization that the marketplace doesn't care.
2: (laughs) I remember coming to terms with that myself. And there was something about it that was initially depressing. And then something about that that was extraordinarily freeing. what did you go through in your journey to accept that the marketplace doesn't care about you
0: first it was just anger and i was just going to take all my toys and go home yeah all this talent all this passion for humanity all this intelligence oh well oh well i'm gonna go into my hole and eat worms
2: mm.
0: so there was that initial just a retreat yeah when the new view opens up old view provided something as, as ineffective as it was in fulfilling my aims, it provided something. It provided inspiration, provided motivation, like that. Once I could grieve the old view and let it go, for a moment, there was nothing. Like, I didn't have an empowering context for money yet, and that has evolved over time. You know, the other thing that has made a difference in shifting the view about money is when the money comes in, the impact that it has on me and my family and the people around me, it does do good. Hmm. And when money didn't matter and I just wanted to do the things that helped the most, the other thing I started to see was I was actually devaluing my help. When I could start to see like the marketplace doesn't care. You set the value for your help, and if you set a really low value for your help, then you're devaluing yourself in the marketplace.
3: Mm.
0: When it became value and not a thing to get the bigger house, not to have a bigger retirement account, when money became the value of my help, then that sort of pulled me out of this, I'm going to take my toys and go home. It was now about building something valuable in the marketplace. And it was also sort of showing the social work world and the business world that a social worker can build something of value in the marketplace.
1: If you'd like to know more about influence ecology and our approach, check out our webinar, Ambitious Living, The Eight Defining Principles. The webinar is available globally. We'll teach you the core principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. This webinar is for those who aspire to an influential life that provides measurable satisfaction for themselves, their family, and their organizations. This webinar is specifically designed for those who don't want to sacrifice a well-balanced life for superior financial rewards. They want it all. To find out more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the US or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008. And we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone again text the word ambition to 805 262 also in our show notes you'll find all the links to websites books or special downloads mentioned in this podcast
2: so here you are you have been at work for some time i know you've had a, a great year you, you talk about being almost completely out of a rather substantial debt You've had an incredible month just recently, and so forth. So, tell us a little bit now about your transactional competence and what you've learned, and and how things are now.
0: So, the the, the aspects of my transactional competence. So, in terms of my facility with gaining compliance from people, and, and one thing to say about gaining compliance.
2: It's good to say you got to talk about that. That just sounds. Talk about evil.
0: <laughs> evil, exactly. It's controlling people. That's bad. But of course, if you cannot manipulate people, essentially, I mean, marketing is manipulation. So I had to get over the gaming compliance isn't controlling people. It's making things work the way they're supposed to work. It's like being compliant to a particular mode of workability right it's it's sure. it's, it's, not, it's not about like dominating people so if i want folks to to buy my products to engage my consulting i actually have to have them comply with the way i do it so they can actually get the full value of what i do so so, th- so, so that's my new frame for compliance it's just it's workability
3: mm-hmm.
0: so gaining compliance for colleagues that i transact with customers and just even like folks in my personal life, just knowing the personality and the aspects of transactional behavior that go with each personality, it's automatic. I can look at someone, I can ask them a question or two, and I can say, oh, that's this kind of person. So I better skip the niceties and get right down to business. I gain compliance from people a lot faster. And it's in my bones. If if I make the analogy to driving stick shifts, like I don't even think about it. I just attend to personality and transactional behavior naturally. So that's one piece. And boy, does it make a difference. Yeah. If you actually talk to people in a narrative that works for them, they throw money at you. Yeah. That's one, right? Like that's one aspect of transactional competence. And then the other aspect is just being able to locate myself in a transaction. Like where exactly in the transaction are we? And training my brain to ask me that question automatically, particularly if I smell breakdown. Mm. So where in the transaction? Oh, oh, wait, you're, you're not in contract. There is no contract. There's just an intent to act. Do not start work. In the past, I would have just started work because the person was someone of their word. If I'm in intent to act and I'm not in contract, I'm not going to start reading documents that go with a project. Uh, So, so that, so knowing where I am in the transaction has saved me a lot, a lot, a lot of grief and a lot of money. I remember a hundred thousand dollar mistake I made Mm. uh, because I didn't know where I was in the transaction. And it was exactly this. We were in intent to act. I somehow convinced myself we were in contract because the person was someone of their word or had been in the past at least.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And I sunk a bunch of time. And then they reneged on a hundred thousand dollar contract. Mm. So that, that's the other aspect is just knowing exactly where I am. And the other thing that has helped me, uh, given the, the personality type that I am is I have a, I have a really hard time completing things.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I can make even bad things work, right? Things that should be completed. I can make them work and go on and on and on and on into perpetuity. And so now I can sort of push myself out of that part of the transaction, which is fulfillment, into completion, because I can feel I've been in fulfillment too long.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? So it's, all o- it's always knowing sort of where I am in the transaction and what actions I need to take to pull myself forward. And so then the transactions go- are going faster. And money actually doesn't come into a bank account until you complete a transaction, turns out. No wonder there wasn't anything in my bank account. because I was just working, 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 fulfilling, 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 not completing.
2: That's great. And and for our audience, can you say a little bit about the personality that you are? Because the personality, one of the attributes of your personality is that they don't complete things. So can you say a little bit about the personality that you identify with, where that is in the transaction and why that's relevant to what you just said?
0: So the the personality I identify most with is the producer personality. And you look at the transaction cycle like a clock, that's somewhere between 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. <laughs> and so I, I live between 5 p.m. and that's where I'm most comfortable with my cup of coffee at my desk, tapping away, working, 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 working. Checking things off lists, making binders. That's the personality that I I, I, I identify with. And so I'm just happy to keep getting stuck between 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. But like I said, you know, no money comes in until you to you hit, you know, 1159.
2: Do you think that that personality is that way that they that they won't complete something all the way? If you complete the contract, then there's nothing to do. Is, is that what you think they're avoiding, that there'll be nothing to do at the end of, of a contract? Or do you think it's something else? What do you speculate that's about?
0: There might actually be nothing to do. There might not be a new transaction. I wouldn't be sort of this lone entrepreneur in, in, a, in a social work landscape if I didn't have some uh, competency in inventing. Mm. But if I'm having a bad day where I live is between 5pm and 7pm. And what will I do with myself if this transaction completes? Yeah. For folks that are like me, right? They didn't go to business school. They work in either in academia, or in human services. We didn't take classes on the marketplace. Right. So unless you want to put your nose down And just work your fingers to the bone for really long hours. You're going to have to figure out where you're going to get your transactional education, right? Uh, I mean, you could go, you could go to get your MBA, I suppose, or you could do something like influence ecology, but don't think it's just going to come. We're either born with it or we're not or somehow. The the knowledge to transact is going to descend. Where are you going to go get that help? And I'm just super grateful for Influence Ecology coming into my path because that's where I got the help to actually be the entrepreneur I always knew I wanted to be.
2: That's great. Do you see transacting now as a skill, an ability? context. How how do you see transacting? When you hear transacting or transactional competence or exchange now, how do you hear it now, maybe compared to how you may have heard it in the past?
0: Well, I used to hear it as this cold, unhuman (laughs) um, economic thing, right? Mm -hmm. That's how I used to hear it. And What I see about transacting now is that it's crucial to moving anything forward. It doesn't have to be cold. There can be a lot of humor and partnership and levity in it. And when I start to look at transacting as an exchange of help, then it infuses the humanity back in. So, okay, so you do this thing and I do this thing. And do I need the thing that you do? And do I have the resources to purchase the help that you are? If yes, great. And if not, it's not personal.
3: Hmm.
0: It used to be personal. Yeah. And it's just, it's not personal anymore. And the beauty of it is, is that in something that is no longer personal, there's actually more room for humanity.
2: That's really great.
0: That was the surprise. Like that was the surprise in all of this, which was like, wow, if I can actually become a formidable transactionalist in the marketplace, build something of value, surround myself with people. I have folks around me that are, they have permission to say, "Kush, you're giving it away. Hmm. Stop. It actually has opened up space for partnership that doesn't have any resentment behind it for uh creating things together. Right? When it's not personal, surprisingly, that's when I can actually be be human. What I was afraid of is if I stopped having it be like be a personal thing like wow, like I like you, you like me, we're together in this thing and we're making a huge difference, if I stopped making it about that, the humanity would disappear. In fact, the opposite happened.
2: Well, on that note, um can you Can you say something about transactionalism? Because we've talked about transactional competence and so forth. And as you know, there's a focus here on transactionalism. Can you offer your understanding of transactionalism as a philosophical discourse and, and why you think this philosophy matters?
0: Here's my favorite thing about transactionalism. My favorite thing about transactionalism is that it is undergirded by this notion of co-constitutiveness there is not an artificial or we, we live like there is but there actually isn't an artificial bifurcation between you and me between me and my office between me and the grocery store clerk like we're all in one transaction and so the integration that that view provides to reality and the access to what there is to do, once you can think from there, is is my favorite thing about transactionalism. So the grocery clerk and I are in a transaction, and I've got a job to do in this transaction, and she's got a job to do in this transaction, and if I look from there, I know what there is to do. There's to be a good customer, there's to say thank you, but when we live under the, under the illusion that it's me showing up at the grocery store and interacting with this other human being and I'm doing my thing and they're doing their thing, what there is to do isn't actually um, apparent to me. Like what role I'm supposed to play in the transaction, like that. So that's, that's my, my favorite thing about transactionalism is sort of the unification of reality. I, I've asked myself, John, I've asked myself, why transactionalism or what makes transactionalism important now? What I what I could see when I started to inquire into that question was, look, we've been transacting since we were born as a species. Life wasn't that complex. So we got away with bad transacting. But the more and more complex life gets, the more important transactionalism becomes. And so I really also think that it's a philosophy whose time is now.
2: And what have you personally discovered about the difference between transacting and self-acting?
0: Well, I mean, look, I'm a producer, so I look for results, right? Until I have results, I'm not drawing any conclusions. So I could see that the, self, like the self-acting methodology, it's not bad. I mean, you know, a lot of people do it. It just takes forever, and it's like you feel like Sisyphus. That's the, you know, the guy that's sort of rolling the, the, the rock up the, the, the hill. And then, you know, you roll it up and it comes right back down and you just start over. But when I started to transact, things just got easier. Hmm. Like I wasn't like swimming upstream so much anymore. And so when I could see the results in my life, I could really see the value. So, I mean, you can't tell fact. Go ahead. It's just a lot of work.
2: Yeah, you can. You can self-act. You can, you can try to wish things to be. You, uh, one of my favorite words to substitute for self-acting is overlord, or you're sort of an overlord of all things. And I certainly grew up in that kind of world where I was an overlord of over all things, that I could have things go my way simply because I willed them okay. that way and that I somehow could have my intentions become realized because I could will them that way. And that was as real for me as breathing for much of my my first 20 years of living. And in transactionalism, it's become quite obvious to me that was while that may be an approach and while there may be something about that that works, that it was always a independent relationship that I was not a part of the environment that I'm a part of. It somehow made me, I think you know what it is, it, it, (laughs) it made me not an animal or an organism in an environment dealing with being impacted by the environment. Somehow I was above all that. And in removing myself from that environment, it's as if I made myself impotent. In the transactions and exchanges that occur between me and the environment, me and all the others, because I felt I could will something versus deal with people. And in fact, in my own journey, what I'm still dealing with is continuing to develop the skills and the abilities to engage with other people when it would be so easy to hide behind technology. It'd be so easy not to have to talk to other people not to have to engage with other people not to have to be a part of the environment and be responsible as a citizen of the environment absolutely any, any notes on all that
0: look you you actually can live like that your, your sphere of influence then is very small if you want a life where you have complete control by yourself over what happens that doesn't happen there's just limits to what to what aims you can fulfill i can make the world work exactly the way i want i could overlord it it's just then i have to stay in this little circle where i have all the control the minute you make your circle bigger there's those messy things called people
2: (laughs) that's right
0: you just can't make anything big happen without people And that's where the overlord thing starts to break down because nobody wants to be lorded.
2: Yeah. I know that in watching you go through our programs over the years, you didn't like the games of the conferences at first. I think I could say you hated the games of the conferences at first. Yes. And in the last conference, I saw you throw yourself into it in the most beautiful way. So tell me about that.
0: There's trust that I've developed in you all. And, and, and the way you teach transactionalism, because I see the results. Mm-hmm. So n- now that I can see the results and you know, look, the game is part of what you like, how you teach us. That's part of it is just, I really trust what you're trying to, to, to convey with the game. And if I don't play full out, then I'm just not going to get the value right now that I trust that there is something to get
2: good. So then I think the last thing that I want to do here is uh, you may have some things you'd love to get on a soapbox about. You listed a few things. Uh, You talked about money buying help, and I think that that was an important piece for you. But I'm also curious about what you're at work on. Tell me a little bit about the work that you've been doing. It sounds like you've been working in a similar kind of vein for many, many years. Can you tell us about what you're at work on and why you're passionate about it?
0: The way I started the route of, of working in foster care is I had a weekend job at a group home because I couldn't get ends to meet as a 22-year-old in Los Angeles with just a 9-to-5 job. So when I started to work at this group home, it happened to be a group home for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender foster youth.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender foster youth often do get stuck in group homes Because your run-of-the-mill foster family isn't up for fostering LGBT kids. So they just end up in congregate care with round-the-clock staff, and then they turn 18, and they're on their own. That's usually how it goes with the LGBT kids in the system. Mm -hmm. What I learned from working with them, I got this huge lesson in resilience and courage. There they were, being themselves in the face of rejection, in the face of abuse and neglect in their past and having the bandwidth to to give me a hug or sit down and play a game with me right or go to school and and do it. so so there was just this this lesson in resilience and courage and so my life was about how, how do i make how do i make this kind of resilience available to the world mm-hmm. in order to make that kind of resilience available to the world you have to create leaders out of these kids because they lived it What my work became about was how to make the system that they live in hospitable for them so they can teach us and give us what there is to get from them. Mm. That's what the last 10 years of my life has been about is how to make that system better so they can actually be the leaders they were born to be. Right, So they're not worried about like, oh my God, I'm on my third social worker I don't even know, like, who to talk to about getting braces, like, let alone hone my leadership skills, mm. right? So it became about making the system more hospitable. One of the things I'm proudest of is that we wrote a grant in 2010 that actually became the, the highest scoring proposal in the nation and resulted in a program that made the federal government actually say gay and children in the same sentence. Mm. And that resulted in $13 million being brought to the LA LGBT center to make a better foster care system or to test a better foster care system for LGBT foster youth. Out of that project, we did a survey and we found that 19% of kids in the LA County child welfare system actually are LGBT. Really? Because we actually found a good way to count and a good way to ask. And- that is a gross overrepresentation. If they're seven to eight percent of the population, how come they're nineteen percent of the foster care population? That number got the attention of the Board of Supervisors uh, here in Los Angeles. The way Los Angeles is governed is it's governed by five five supervisors. Mm. They started to ask questions as to, well, how come? Like, how come these kids are getting stuck in the child welfare system? What are we missing? And they then hired me to do this scan of all 11 county departments that serve children in Los Angeles to figure out how come there's 19% of kids in the LA County Child Welfare System that are LGBT. It started out working the weekends at a group home, and now I'm really able to make an impact on preventing the kids from even getting there.
2: That's great.
0: So that's that's that piece. And then I think what has happened in, inside of my journey with Influence Ecology is I'm starting to get a better idea about what it is I want to do in the future to keep making that system better. And so we've created a new organization that's called Implematics. And that organization, its job is to bang, bring all the best practices in implementation from aerospace, tech, and healthcare, to the foster care business so we can be excellent. I, I don't want to hear the conversation anymore. It's, ah, those organizations, boy, they do good work and their heart's in the right place, but they're a mess. Yeah. And Implementics is out to shift that narrative and to say we can have excellence here. We can do good and have excellence and be well-paid. So that's the next chapter.
2: I've loved watching your journey because... I know that your heart's always been in the right place. And I know that you're really, really smart and in the pocketbook didn't follow. So I love that it now does.
0: Like I told Kirkland yesterday, Influence Ecology has taken this lone social worker in a capitalist meat market and transformed her into a formidable business
2: person. That's right. Dr. Kush Cooper, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. You're welcome. Likewise. As I said, today's Guru Talk is from a membership webinar on the subject of indifference in the marketplace. You'll hear co-founder Kirkland Tibbles address the state of mind of an ambitious adult. In her interview, Dr. Cooper refers to passively waiting rather than ambitiously transacting. And in this talk, underscores the difference between most people and those who act with ambition. Here's the talk.
4: To be an ambitious adult means that you have your aims articulated, that you move strategically and tactically to satisfy your conditions of life. You know what they are. And more importantly, you recognize that these conditions are are like organs in a body, and they work together. Take out the condition of life for a second. Deal with it. Set your aims. Build your transactions and stick it back into the whole body because it it all works together. You cannot have a set of ethics that doesn't affect all other conditions of life. You can't have a poor body or a sick, sick mind and have it all the other conditions of life turn out. They all work together, transactionally, reciprocally. They're all a set of, of reciprocal exchanges working together all the time, and you need to know what your aims are in them. And you will have to do things that you would normally not want to do. We make invitations to people to listen and consider. And we agitate and we excite. We seduce and we, whatever it takes, to wake people up to the opportunity that we are for them to live a better life. Some listen, some don't. My job is to make the invitation. And when we find a meeting of the minds, we make offers. And when we move reciprocally with our aims and their concerns in mind, we join together in committed action. And we request others to take action. And sometimes what that means is that we support people who are indifferent, complacent, and naive by saying, hey, I didn't get your paper. Because we're committed. And we say it over and over, don't let us chase you around. Don't make us chase you around for your metrics. What's that all about? Well, I'll tell you what it's about. You're simply indifferent. It's not that you don't care about me or John or Influence Ecology or the study. In fact, I think you do care. You're paying some pretty good money for it. You spend a lot of time doing the other things. But when it comes to the little things, you're just indifferent, that's all. Not bad, but it's costly. We're indifferent to the words that fall out of our mouth way too often. A thought crosses your mind, it, it ought not cross your lips every single time. You have a quick thought, you have something nasty you wanna say about somebody on Facebook, and you go ahead and say it, even though your biology is just tapping you on the shoulder going, you probably shouldn't say that, you probably shouldn't say that. You know what, you probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> Here's an answer for you. If you ever wonder if you should send the email or the text or or do the tweet, if you ever have a thought, I wonder if I should, the answer is no. You shouldn't. Ambitious adults accept the fact that the environment itself is indifferent to our concerns. There are constraints in the environment, and we don't argue with them. We don't deny or reject our biology the need for linguistic distinctions and the faculty and facility that it takes to transact effectively with other human beings to satisfy our conditions of life. We don't argue with the fact that we need to study. We don't argue with the fact that we require specialized knowledge. We don't argue with the fact that we must rigorously, ethically, and continually produce a consequential environment because if we don't, naivete and indifference will take over. There is no question. In my mind, that most people are indifferent, even the ones who I know love me. So I just play the odds, my friend, and I take no chances. If it's important, I am going to apply the consequences. If I need to, I will threaten. Or better yet, call Daryl and have him do it. But I'll get the job done. And I don't, listen, ambitious adults do not confuse their lack of skill and talent. They aren't confused about it. They recognize it. They recognize their weaknesses and their liabilities, and they transact to shore them up, and they don't mind admitting it when they don't know something. An adult is waiting, and that's what most people are doing out there is they're waiting for you to make the offer, and you are are indifferent if you don't. If you can talk yourself out of picking up the phone and not inviting that person to hear the opportunity, maybe you're not serious enough. Maybe you're indifferent. Do the hard stuff first. If you know that you ought to be at conference, don't make me go down that list of names, and you're waiting, well, good luck.
2: In our next episode, we talk with a panel of advanced participants who've just returned from our global conference in Ohio.
4: This study is not for a person that is unwilling to look at where they are high cost. One of the things in my over four years, nearly five years with you guys, is I realized I was a really high cost customer at times. But also, it enabled me, if I'm a high-cost customer to you, I'm also a high-cost to other people in my environment. And people sometimes don't transact with me because of that. This is not for someone that is unwilling to take a really long, hard look at where are they being too costly for people they say they care about.
2: If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share it with others. You can share it from our website at influenceecology.com. You can subscribe on iTunes or any place you get your podcasts. If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment to go to iTunes and let us know what you think. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I'd like to thank our guest for a great interview. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with them and all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. Episode producer, editor, and music supervisor, Jason Kelly. Podcast copy and show notes, editing, and links by Carol Gregory.